Well, hello, Grace family. This is the fourth week in our series, In the Moment, exploring the uh, moments that are leading up to the death of Jesus from the perspective of the apostle Peter. Now, I so far found this really fascinating uh, to see things from this kind of fresh angle because Peter is such a flawed yet relatable character in the story. As he experiences all these these wild swings of emotion, bravado and fear and confusion and shame, we see all of that. And and frankly, we know exactly how he feels because in a sense, Peter represents all of us, which makes ultimately his, his forgiveness and his redemption in spite of his flaws so much more encouraging because we know that like Peter, the grace of Jesus Christ is more than enough for our brokenness. And so his story is an encouragement to us. Okay, so far in the story, what we've looked at is uh, the fact that Jesus, he's already spent this deep and intense uh, time with his disciples at the Last Supper. He's prayed passionately in the Garden of Gethsemane while his best friends slept, and he's been betrayed by Judas. That's what we've looked at each of these weeks so far. And today, we're going to see what happens when Jesus is taken to the high priest's house to begin a trial that will ultimately lead to his execution. Now, Peter, in the story, he follows along uh, and he tries to see what's going to happen. And he stays out in the courtyard while this trial is taking place. Um, But as we're going to see, that moment in in the courtyard becomes something of a trial for Peter as well. So here's what I want you to do. Go ahead and grab a Bible, wherever you are, wherever you're watching this, grab a Bible if you can. And uh, I'd love for you to have one open in front of you. And we're going to look at Matthew chapter 26, starting at verse uh, 57. Now, uh, real quick, while you're doing that, I just wanted to give you a heads up. I don't know, it's, it's been kind of hard sometimes to find joy and delight in, in this crazy world that we're in right now. And so uh, one of the things that I've been finding great joy in is uh, the animals that are on our property. We have uh, Olivia and I, my wife and I, we foster rabbits and we have this new litter of baby bunnies that had been uh, abandoned to a shelter. And so they're now in our home. They're two weeks old. They're completely adorable. And we also have our neighbor boarding six of her horses in our barn. And one of those horses is pregnant and is due to give birth like a week ago. So she's past her due date. We're going to have a new little baby colt running around in our barn here in a minute. And it's bringing us a lot of joy. But I don't want to just like hoard all that joy to ourselves. I want to actually share it. And so the Grace Kids team and I have been working on a a fun way to uh, have kids, especially in our congregation, uh, meet our animals over the next few weeks. And so just as a heads up, one of the things we're going to be doing starting on Thursday is we're going to have these uh, Facebook Live uh, time with with Pastor Barry on the farm, uh, little moments with with our kids. So if you have kids and you want to log in, or if you're not, if you if you're an adult and you want to log in too, no one's you know we're not you're not going to be disallowed. But uh, if you want to watch, it's going to be Thursday mornings at uh, 10 a.m. I believe is that correct? 10 a.m. We'll find out. If we're not live at 10 a.m., it's 11 a.m., but I'm pretty sure it's 10 a.m. And, uh, and you can watch us live and uh, meet my bunnies this week, the horses next week, and the chickens the week after that. So you're encouraged to come along. It's going to be fun and hopefully bring a, a few little moments of joy and some smiles in the midst of a pretty heavy time. Uh, because you know what? I'm a seven on the Enneagram. It's a personality test, and uh, that's the kind of thing I like to do. So What were we talking about? The Bible? That's right. Yeah. Okay. The Bible. Here we are. Matthew 26. Now, I want to give you just a little bit of context before we dive into this particular story, um, because there's a little bit of a broader story going on related to the trial of Jesus. 
There's essentially two main moments in this trial. The first, the one that we're going to look at today, is all about what happens to him at the high priest's house. This is when essentially the religious leaders of Israel are putting Jesus on trial. But then there's this whole other section of the trial, which is when he's uh, in front of the Roman authorities, in front of uh, the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. And uh, that whole... uh, That whole part of the trial is what actually leads to his crucifixion. We're not going to look at that part of the trial as much because the part that Peter is involved in ends uh, at the high priest's house. So uh, there's a lot more we could have talked about, but we're just going to focus on that first part of the trial. Just wanted you to have a little context before we went into this. Okay, Matthew 26, starting at verse 57. Then the people who had arrested Jesus led him to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the religious law and the elders had gathered. Meanwhile, Peter followed him at a distance and came to the high priest's courtyard. He went in and he sat with the guards and waited to see how it all would end. Inside, the leading priests and the entire high council were trying to find witnesses who would lie about Jesus so that they could put him to death. But even though they found many who agreed to give false witness, they could not use anybody's testimony. Finally, two men came forward who declared, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus remained silent. Then the high priest said to him, I demand in the name of the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the son of God. And Jesus replied, you've said it. And in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothing to show his horror. And he said, blasphemy. Why do we need any other witnesses? You've all heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? Guilty, they shouted. He deserves to die. Then they began to spit in Jesus's face and beat him with their fists. And some slapped him, jeering, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you this time? All right, let's talk about what's happening here. Uh, The key verse to pay attention to is verse 59. Verse 59, where the religious leaders are, quote, trying to find witnesses who would lie about Jesus so they could put him to death. You see, they already knew that he was guilty. They already had this in their mind. This was not going to be a fair and impartial trial. No, they wanted him dead. And they were just looking for the reason why. But here's why this is complicated, because during this time in Israel, the, the Roman occupiers didn't allow anyone else to carry out executions. That was the job of the Romans alone. So the, the religious leaders, they knew that if they wanted to execute Jesus officially and not just murder him in some back alley, then they needed to do it the right way. They needed to have witnesses who could have their stories straight and actually agree so that they could bring Jesus as a guilty man before the Roman governor. But the best that they could come up with was what we can tell so far is a a misquotation of Jesus, which is frankly taken out of context in verse 61, all this stuff about the temple. Now, as far as we can tell, based on what the Bible says, Jesus never actually said that he would destroy the temple. That's not what he said. Only that he could rebuild it in three days if it were destroyed. Now, that is even more complicated by the fact that He was talking as a metaphor. He was talking about his own body, talking about his resurrection. Uh, So they really took him out of context and they kind of mischaracterized what he said. But that was enough in their minds for them to pounce. Because claiming to have power over the temple, being able to say, I'm going to destroy it or, or purify it or any of that, that was a job for only one person, the Messiah. 
the promised leader of Israel. That was the only person who could have that kind of power over the temple. So they, they, they say, you said this, didn't you? You said this, but notice this. Jesus will not defend himself. Even if they took him out of context, he doesn't, he doesn't fight back. It says in verse 63 that he stays silent. The implication being that he was silent all night. This was a long trial in the face of all of these, these false accusations. So finally, when all this stuff comes to a head, the high priest asks him, essentially, speak plainly. Do you really think that you are the Messiah? And how Jesus responds in verse 64, well, may seem a little bit weird to us uh, because it's all this stuff about the son of man and the place of power and the clouds of heaven. Uh, it, It seems a little odd, but it's actually not when you understand what he was getting at. All of what he's referring to here is actually a reference back to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Uh, this, this reference to Daniel is actually in the Gospels a lot because the phrase son of man is the phrase that Jesus used the most to refer to himself. That's the title that he used to describe himself as the son of man. In Daniel 7, where he gets this phrase, uh, Daniel, the prophet, has this wild vision this wild vision of all of these uh, chaos beasts that are spreading death and disorder in the world. All, the, all the, the sin and the darkness is coming from these beasts until a human shows up. One, quote, like a son of man who is chosen by Yahweh to bring order into this world, to defeat the rule of these chaos beasts, to share ultimately in God's, God's authority over creation, to rise up on the clouds of heaven and sit on Yahweh's throne. Now, here's why this is significant. Uh, Because yes, this is a a prophecy that in some way relates to the Messiah, but it's also a prophecy about a human who could in some way also be divine. This is is a human who's actually sharing the authority of the creator of the universe. So for Jesus, this village preacher from Galilee, to imply that he was that son of man— that he actually shared in God's authority. This is blasphemy to the religious leaders, that they're ready to put him to death. This is a huge deal. Now, to be clear, he says all this, but this is not, again, a defense. He's not putting up a defense. He's not arguing for his innocence. He's simply speaking the truth of who he is, and then he goes silent again. And and after this statement, at least in Matthew's gospel, this is the last time he speaks, except for just two other words, before his final cry on the cross. So he is not going to defend himself. He's not going to fight back. He does not try to correct false accusations. And all this stuff about the Son of Man, frankly, it just stokes the fires of the rage of the religious leaders even hotter. Put simply, Jesus willingly goes to his death. He sets aside his own life for the sake of others, and he does not put up a fight. Meanwhile, meanwhile, as Jesus is not putting up a fight, there's another trial going on. Maybe not as significant or severe as of a trial, but there's another trial nonetheless, and it's the trial of Peter. It's the trial of Peter, and let's read what happens uh, when Peter is put on trial in verse 69. Meanwhile, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. A servant girl came over and said to him, you were one of those with Jesus the Galilean. But Peter denied it in front of everyone. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Later, out by the gate, another servant girl noticed him and said to those standing around, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Again, Peter denied it, this time with an oath. I don't even know the man, he said. A little later, some of the other bystanders came over to Peter and said, you must be one of them. We can tell by your Galilean accent. 
And Peter swore, a curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. Suddenly Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you even know me. And he went away weeping bitterly. Now it's no coincidence that Matthew puts this story right where he does. He puts it right here. Now, obviously it follows the narrative flow, but there's a reason that Matthew put it exactly where he does. I believe it's because he is intentionally contrasting Peter's actions on trial with those of Jesus on trial. Think about it. Think about it. Jesus is silent all night in the face of all these accusations. And Peter, he goes straight to arguing and oath-taking and cursing the moment he's asked these basic questions. And look even at their physical movement. Look at their bodies. And in verse 67, Jesus is being spit on and beaten and slapped, and yet he's staying put. He doesn't try to escape. But Peter, he starts in the courtyard, and then he moves out to the, to the outer gate, and finally he ends up fleeing the scene entirely, trying to put himself as far away from danger as possible. Where Jesus is demonstrating self-denial, Peter is demonstrating self-preservation. Which makes me wonder, he's trying to preserve his life so much. What was going on in Peter's mind at this moment? Because he'd been following Jesus for years. So how could he so quickly leave Jesus in the dust and just run away to preserve his own skin? So many years of following. This is the exact same guy, remember, who who said just a few hours before, even if everyone else deserts you, Jesus, I never will. He, in his mind, was there till the end. And yet he fled. So did Peter stop believing that Jesus was who he says he was? Had he lost confidence uh, that Jesus was the Messiah? Did his faith waver after all these years? Is that why he ran? Well, to answer that, I want to go back to a moment that Jesus had with his disciples long before the crucifixion, like, you know, possibly, you know, months, if not years before, because I think it brings a lot of light to what's happening with Peter here on trial. So I'm going to ask you to flip back a few pages to Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse, uh, in verse 13. And I want to show you this. This is such an important moment. And I think it, it totally connects to this moment uh, at the trial. Matthew 16, verse 22. Oh, sorry, verse 13. Excuse me, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, in Matthew's gospel, this is the very first time that anybody claims that Jesus is the Messiah. It's coming from the mouth of Peter himself. That's a big deal. Way to go, Peter, honestly. Like he, he's the first one in Matthew's gospel to, to put his foot down and say, yes, Jesus, you are the Messiah. Peter gets it. But right after this, if we keep reading these next few verses, Jesus begins describing how he's going to die at the hands of the religious leaders of Israel. And Peter, he gets all up, up in arms and he says he, he wouldn't have any of it. Look at, look at verse 22. Peter took Jesus aside and he began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and he said, get away from me, Satan. 
You're a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? For the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. And I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. There's Daniel 7 again, by the way. All right, so this scene is really important for understanding uh, where Peter's head was in the face of, of, of all this, uh, this conflict around the crucifixion. Look at verse 23 of, of chapter 16. Jesus says to Peter, to one of his closest friends and his closest followers, get away from me, Satan. Satan in, in Greek, it's the adversary. You're, get away from me. You're, you're my opponent. Yikes. You're seeing things, Peter. You're seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. This, again, remember, is just after Peter calls Jesus the Messiah. So is Jesus correcting him? Is he, was Peter wrong about that? Maybe Jesus wasn't the Messiah? Is that what's going on here? Well, no, no. Peter was right. Jesus is the Messiah, but his understanding of what that meant was incomplete. You see, Peter... He expected the Messiah, the anointed king of Israel, to do Messiah things, to to rise to power, to root out the sin from Israel, to kick out the Gentile invaders. Those are all things the Messiah was going to do. That's what the prophets said the Messiah would do. But Jesus, he didn't see those same things from a human point of view. He understood that the kingdom of God was upside down. You see, Jesus did rise to power, but he rose to power by giving up power, by by making himself a servant. Jesus rooted out sin from Israel, but he did it by becoming an ultimate sacrifice, by actually taking the sin of Israel and the world onto himself. Jesus, he ended Israel's conflict with the Gentiles, just like the, the Messiah was meant to do, but he did it not by kicking them out, but by welcoming them in. See, Peter expected the Messiah's rise to be filled with glory and strength and battle cries. And Jesus knew that the Messiah's rise would come through humility and weakness and cries of pain. This dichotomy, this this misunderstanding of what it meant for the Messiah to come to power, I believe that dichotomy was at the core of what Peter was experiencing the night that he denied Jesus. Watching Jesus being paraded on into trial, he must have been thinking, what's happening? I thought Jesus was the, the king, but now he's being mocked and, and beaten. I thought he would, he would rule with power, but now he's not even defending himself. These guys want to kill him. These guys might want to kill me. Hey, weren't you one of those people with, uh, with Jesus? I, I, no, no I, don't even, I don't even know the guy. You can start to imagine what Peter was thinking as as he was watching all of his assumptions of what the Messiah's rule would bring collapsing in front of him. All of his his preconceived notions were starting to fade. Can you really blame him in that moment for trying to save his own skin? Would you or I do any differently 
if everything we understood to be true was suddenly, was suddenly crumbling around us. We know how the story ends, but in that moment, he didn't. He did not know what was going to happen. We know, yes, that ultimately through his sacrifice and his humiliation, Jesus did fulfill the role of the Messiah. He did ascend to power. God elevated him to the place of highest honor and he gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We know that the son of man is sitting on the throne. But in those early morning hours, as Jesus was put on this mock trial, this, this, this parade of a trial, it seemed to all the world, it seemed to Peter too, I imagine, that this messianic mission had come to an end. Matthew 16, 24, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. You must deny yourself, in other words. You must take up your cross, die to yourself, and follow me. How many times do you think Peter heard those words? Probably hundreds. He probably heard that again and again, and yet I don't think that he ever really had them put to the test until his own life was on the line. Jesus said, if you try to hang on to your life, Peter, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. In that moment, while Jesus was on trial, Peter hung on to his life, and it led to weeping and despair. But Jesus gave up his life, and it led to the salvation of the world. Now, I'm so glad the story doesn't end there for Peter, because there's a really encouraging development that happens later. After uh, after Jesus begins to call Peter back into ministry, Now, when he denied Jesus, he may not have understood that this upside down kingdom of God uh, was was what it was. I don't think he understood that, but he definitely got it after Jesus's resurrection. He started to really, really understand this. The Bible goes on to tell us that Peter went on to become one of the core leaders of the early church. He preached about the scandalous sacrifice of Jesus, the Messiah, and thousands of people, it tells us, thousands of people joined the movement because of him. He got the message. He understood this upside down kingdom and everybody wanted to be a part of it. Peter dedicated his life to this message. And ultimately, as as early church tradition tells us, Peter actually gave his own life. He, He was crucified by the Romans just like Jesus. He literally carried his cross and he followed Jesus even into death. Now you remember earlier how I said that Peter was a representation of all of us in a way. Well, this is what I'm talking about. This is what I'm talking about because his journey goes from self-preservation to self-denial. A man who denied Jesus on the night of his crucifixion ultimately went to his own crucifixion. You see that? Self-preservation to self-denial. Peter's story represents the journey that every one of us, every one of us must take if we want to follow Jesus. Being a a follower of Christ is an invitation to a life of self-sacrifice, of surrender, of, of dying to ourselves. It is a life that is fundamentally incompatible with self-promotion and self-preservation. And yet we know that as Peter eventually learned that carrying our cross with Christ, that's the path to true life to true healing, to true power. 
We serve in an upside-down kingdom. So let me ask you this. Let's, let's get self-reflective for a moment. Where are you with all of this? All this, these, these ideas of, of surrender, of sacrifice, of carrying your cross. Is that you? Are you doing that? Are you dying to yourself for Jesus? Are you setting your own interests aside or are you focused on self-preservation? Now, uh, to be clear, I'm not asking this out of any kind of judgmentalism or, or I'm not trying to, you know, induce guilt or anything like that. No, because those of us who've been walking with Jesus for decades will all tell you that, that we still, every one of us still has a lot to learn about surrender. This is a lifelong journey, right? We're all in the same boat here. No, I'm asking you this simply because just like Peter, we right now are in the middle of a trial with coronavirus affecting every part of our lives right now. Our faith is being stretched. It's being tested. This is a time in our lives, maybe a once in a lifetime opportunity to see how willing we are to carry our cross for the sake of others. This is a time to see if we are willing to take social distancing seriously to protect the vulnerable, even if it's uncomfortable for us, even if we don't want to do it. This is a time to see if we're willing to not hoard our resources for self-preservation, but to actually give generously to those in need. This is a time to see if we are willing to reach out to those who are in our lives or in our community who are facing loneliness and isolation right now, even if all we really want to do is just watch Netflix and, and, and hunker down and wait for this all to pass. Or maybe most provocative of all, this is a moment to see if we are willing to demonstrate love and compassion for people on the other side of the political spectrum. This is the moment. Our faith is being put to the test. And those are just a few examples that came to mind, right? You could probably come up with hundreds of others. And of course, this goes way beyond the coronavirus. This is something we all experience. This is every part of our life. Self-preservation or self-denial. Look, setting our interests aside, dying to ourselves is just as hard for us as it was for Peter in that courtyard. And yet, unlike Peter in that moment, we have one benefit, and it's that we know the end of the story. You see, we know that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the promised King of Israel. He was the Son of God, the divine in human form. And we know that he was the Son of Man. He was a human who was worthy to share the authority of Yahweh. And yet we know that his ascent to power was through self-sacrifice and death. And so it's a question that we all have to wrestle with. If all that is true of Jesus... And am I willing to give up my life for the sake of healing the world?